Back in the early days of the internet, before the internet was the internet, in fact, before apps and smartphones, before the World Wide Web, before modern email, there was ARPANET and Usenet, one of the denizens of these progenitor e-spaces, which were relegated at the time to mostly academics and scientists because of both the knowledge and the infrastructural requirements to access them was a man commonly referred to as RMS, which were his initials and his online username. His actual name was Richard Stallman, and he began his computer-related career as a day job. He got his bachelor's degree in physics, graduating magna cum laude from Harvard in 1974, and then he became a graduate student at MIT to get his doctorate in physics. But he quit his doctorate program after a year to focus on the work that he had been doing at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory since he was an undergrad. That work at the AI lab resulted in his co-publishing a 1977 paper on an artificial intelligence truth maintenance system. Basically, a system that helps AIs figure out which data can be safely overwritten when new information becomes available, and which data is more or less locked in as irrefutable fact. Some of the work that he did way back then in the 70s is still used today in the world of AI programming. Now, arguably even more important than his work in the world of AI are the projects that he started in his free time as part of the 1970s and 80s computer hacker counterculture. The United States Copyright Act of 1976 made some fundamental changes to the concept of copyright in the country during this time. It was at this moment that copyright durations were adjusted so that they started when the creator of something died, rather than there being a fixed period of time after initial copyright implementation. And the concept of fair use was introduced in its early stages with this act as well. These new laws finally looped in the burgeoning world of computer software, too, and that set off alarms in the world of computer scientists and hackers who were witnessing the initial splintering of their community into those who wanted to go corporate and make a fortune from their products, and those who believed that software and computers could save the world would allow us to solve all that ails humanity. Folks who believed that it was vital to keep these tools as open and outside the world of business as possible. Or at the very least, to ensure businesses could not lock them down and keep these tools as private assets rather than sharing them with humanity as a whole. Stallman was horrified when software developers began to build time bombs into their code, which would essentially cause software to stop working after a specified period if the user did not pay for it within an allotted time, or if they did not pay again in the future once their license had run out. He was personally impacted by a similar software lockdown move made by Xerox, which sealed up and secured the software in their newer printers, preventing Stallman and his co-workers at the MIT AI lab from hacking their device to add new functions. They had altered their prior printer to send messages to users when their print job was done, and to message those who were in the queue to use it next, to ensure that the machine did not sit idle throughout the day. 
Xerox did not provide such a function out of the box, and they considered it their computer God-given right to alter the code in a device that they had purchased. Xerox, post-1976 U.S. Copyright Act, saw things differently, and they began to lock down their devices accordingly. These early software lockdowns represented a sad, alarming shift to Stallman, who responded by creating free versions of software that were released with built-in time bombs. So someone would publish a proprietary locked-down text editor, and he would publish something similar for free that anyone could alter, hack, and rework to their heart's content. This continued on a case-by-case basis for several years. In 1983, though, Stallman founded the GNU, which is often pronounced GNU, project, which, fun fact, is what's called a recursive acronym. So it's an acronym that contains its own acronym. In this case, GNU stands for GNU's Not Unix. The GNU GNU project was founded to help users maintain control over their software and hardware by collaboratively developing and disseminating software that is free to use, free to share, copy, and distribute, and free to be studied and modified. The GNU project led to the GNU General Public License, or GPL, which is still today a massively popular license that guarantees users of software to which this license is adhered all of those same rights. You can use it for free, you can study and share the software, and you can modify it however you choose. Importantly, the GPL also says that any derivative software, anything that you make by hacking on a piece of GPL software, using it as your starting point, must itself be published with a GPL license. What that means is you cannot take a text editor that is published under GPL, add some new features to it, and then sell the resultant upgraded text editing software in the typical way. That new thing that you made atop that GPL program must itself also be GPL, which means it must be open, hackable, studyable, and so on. This is an example of what's often called a copyleft license, meaning it uses the power of copyright law, but only to keep free and open things from becoming less so, from becoming locked down. It is used to protect openness rather than being used to prevent anyone else from using or benefiting from something that you have made. Without such a license in place, it's possible for an individual or company to step in and profit from the combined efforts of thousands of people who have contributed to an open, free piece of software by packaging it, locking it down, and selling it, keeping the users who buy it from seeing what changes were made, making any of their own changes, or being able to use that previously open software in an open way. Copyleft licenses like the GPL use copyright law against what many people see as the abuses inherent in copyright law. What I want to talk about today are some of the many and varied permutations of this idea, and how this software-based copyleft concept is expanding to include other fields, other types of work, as the world becomes increasingly digitized. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today 
is a few months old as of the day I'm recording this, but it gives us a solid jumping off point for some connected topics that are popping up in a variety of other spaces. And it refers to a news item that is still in some ways an evolving story today. This piece comes from Bloomberg and it is entitled Microsoft Buys GitHub for $7.5 billion, going back to its roots. If you've never learned a programming language or worked with software, you may not know what GitHub is, but if you've ever worked at a tech company or a corporation that uses open source anything, chances are you at least recognize the name. Git is a version control system built by Linus Torvalds in 2005 to assist in the development of Linux, which is an open source operating system kernel, meaning it's kind of the primary root component of an operating system, which is based on Unix. Unix was developed at Bell Labs back in the 1960s, and it led to the creation of a modality, a way of doing things with software that has been riffed upon and evolved over the years, to the point that pretty much all major and most minor operating systems today, which are run on countless devices, can point back to Unix as their shared ancestor. So we've got open source options like Linux and BSD, we've got Mac OS and iOS, which trace their lineage back to Next Step, which was based on BSD, and we've got Windows and Android and even ultra-specific operating systems like the Orbis OS that is used on the PlayStation 4. They are all backtrackable to Unix. Chances are, if you have used any kind of digital device today, you have used a Unix-descended operating system. So Torvalds was building his own open source operating system, and Linux, by the way, that OS that he was working on, is usually considered to be the third main option for most consumers beyond Windows and Mac OS, though Google's Chrome OS is slowly creeping its way into that tiny club as well. But Torvalds was hacking away at Linux, and he wanted to create a system that would allow him to keep track of the versions of that operating system, the tweaks and changes that he was making along the way, so that he could then backtrack to previous versions if he wanted to. He could document the changes that he made to see what caused new glitches that emerged. He could track things that needed fixing, and so on. And he also wanted to ensure that this system would be something that other people could access and add to as well. So it wouldn't be just him adding glitches and bugs that needed squashing and making changes and adding features that could then be implemented into the main core trunk of the software. Part of the benefit of working collaboratively on open software is that you are usually working together with a bunch of other clever people around the world. So it was important that this system he was building would allow that kind of collaboration to happen. Git was the solution that he came up with. And like the OS that he was developing, Torvalds and the other people involved made sure that Git was open and free and hackable. Anyone who wanted to use it could use it, and for whatever purposes they cared to use it for. GitHub was founded a few years later, in 2008, as a service predicated on Git. So to be clear, Git could still, and can still, be used by anyone, and edited by anyone for any purpose without having to pay a cent. 
You can download Git, make your own edited Git system, and use it however you please. You can release it for other people to use, you can create a new version and release that, whatever you like. It's totally open. GitHub is a service that makes use of the Git system and its interfaces, its commands, its tools, which again allow multiple people to work together on a project. The infrastructure that allows the submission of changes and new versions that allows users to branch a new iteration of a program, to create entirely new programs from one central original program. But GitHub provides the Git software as a service. So for most people, GitHub is a cheap or free way to use Git collaboratively with the millions of people on that platform, which has become something like a social network that is tied together by Git. But enterprise customers, folks who are running businesses or who want higher-end versions of that same service, of storage, of privacy, and so on, those customers are charged to use GitHub. So GitHub is a paid application of a free open piece of software, and it allows most developers to work together with each other to improve upon open software and allows folks inside companies working on proprietary stuff to do the same internally without the rest of the world being able to see their edits and lists of bugs and so on. Now that's an ultra-simplified explanation of Git and GitHub, but the important thing to understand is that GitHub in particular has become fairly central to software developer culture, and it often serves as a sort of portfolio for developers to show off what they've made and to demonstrate how they have participated in the larger developer community. If you're trying to get a job as a programmer, you might just send your GitHub profile page to your potential employer. And they will then be able to see some of what you've built and how you built it and how you have helped refine other people's projects as well. So that gives us a bit of context for that piece in Bloomberg, which discusses the June 4th, 2018 announcement that Microsoft would be buying GitHub for $7.5 billion in stock, a deal that is expected to close by the end of 2018, once regulators have checked it out and given their okay, and which will bring GitHub under Microsoft's umbrella of assets, which includes the professional social network platform, LinkedIn, and the educational media company, Linda among many others. When this announcement went live, there was a lot of speculation about what it meant, what it might foretell. Some pieces focused on the fact that GitHub has been losing money for several years, despite its 2015 round of funding that valued it at about $2 billion. They've also had trouble filling top roles in the company, and despite having around 1.8 million businesses and organizations using their services, each paying around $7 to $21 per user, and despite the fact that around 28 million programmers regularly publish code on their platform, they have been unable to slow their cash burn rate. Even the rosiest interpretations of leaked financial information from 2016 showed GitHub losing around $250 million a year. But other pieces written about the deal have focused on the strange nature of this relationship and the price that is being paid for the platform. $7.5 billion is around 30 times GitHub's annual recurring revenue, which is an absolutely stunning multiplier. Consider for comparison that Microsoft spent $26 billion on LinkedIn in 2016, and that was only 7.2 times LinkedIn's revenue. 
and that was at the time considered to be a fairly inflated price. So 30 times revenue is just astounding. Now add to that strangeness the tumultuous history that the buyer, Microsoft, has had with the open source community. A former Microsoft CEO once said that, quote, Linux is a cancer, end quote. And leaked documents have shown, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, many instances of the company trying to manipulate and even squash pretty much any software or standards that they did not control or that they didn't own the rights to, including very fundamental things like HTML. Considering that stance that they have sometimes taken, and considering what GitHub represents, what it contains, and you have a basic idea of why this deal seems so unusual, and to some people even mildly unnerving. What's happening here becomes a little less opaque, though, I think, if you take a closer look at what's been happening in the world of open source lately. Now, open source software is a type of software that is released to the public by the copyright holder of that software with a license that says, basically, you are free to study this, to change it however you like, and to distribute it freely. And if that sounds familiar, that's probably because one type of open source license is the GNU General Public License, or GPL, which I mentioned in the intro. The GPL, which again was developed by Richard Stallman, overlaps with the most common open source licenses in almost every way. But Stallman argues that the difference between the two systems is a philosophical rather than a practical one. The free software movement that Stallman championed in the mid-80s was focused on keeping software free and finding other ways to pay programmers rather than locking down the fruits of their labor and selling it in the traditional proprietary way. This stance was not universally supported, and some vocal proponents of collaboration and sharing and the ability to crack open software and to see what makes it tick were also interested in the potential business applications of the concept of seeing what might happen if you blended those open ideals with sustainable monetary practices, with creating a business. The folks behind Netscape in particular, which was one of the first majorly popular internet browsers, and which eventually became the basis of popular modern browsers like Mozilla's Firefox, they wanted to figure out how this open collaborative sharing and hacking-based methodology might scale if they were to pour some money into the mix. They thought they might be able to make these programs, which were open and available, a lot more valuable and powerful if they stepped away from Stallman's pure, absolute, free, and no-money-involved ideology. Now, this is a highly debatable perspective, fair warning there, but the consequence of this fork in the open-source movement at least over the last decade or so, seems to be that the open source folks have successfully changed the world of commercial proprietary software more than the other way around. By entering the world of money and business, rather than keeping their work completely money-free, they seem to have managed to shift the conversation to build more powerful and accessible software and to consequently nudge the big bad corporate actors in this space closer to their ideals in many places, in many particulars. It's true that for a long while, entities like Microsoft and Apple publicly hated on open source of any flavor, calling it, quote, an intellectual property destroyer, end quote, among many other rude things. 
And it makes sense that they would feel that way, if you think about it. Microsoft's business model during that time period was almost exclusively predicated on selling software to big companies and consumers. So if you're them, and your economic well-being, your very existence, is reliant on being able to keep your code secret, on keeping anyone else from messing with it, or ripping it off and releasing their own version of it, on being able to tell consumers that once they buy a copy of Windows or Excel, they can only use it once, on one computer, even though they could theoretically put it on as many machines as they like. From that perspective, the idea of open source is borderline sacrilegious. These hippies were telling them to give away the farm, to give up their riches and success, all for some kind of ideological end goal that the corporate world did not share. Over the last 10 years or so, though, the business model behind software has shifted significantly. Companies have realized that subscription-based business models make a lot more sense for things like software, and that by locking customers in to paying $200 a year instead of $500 just once for one version of their software, they can then afford to handle issues with their product faster, they can iterate more incrementally, and they can keep customers paying them steadily over time, year after year, rather than just once and then having to win them back. Corporations have, in essence, converted software from a product into a service. You do not buy something just once. You subscribe to a service that gives you access to that product, and then you keep paying them over time if you want to continue being able to access it. There were a lot of technologies that allowed this model to emerge and flourish. It's not a new idea, but it was a lot less viable to implement back in the day. When you had to get software on CDs or other types of physical media, the internet was not powerful enough to transmit gigabytes worth of data to individuals back then, which limited severely the types of things that could be distributed electronically. As high-speed internet became more widely available, though, it became possible to not just download Microsoft Word once, but instead to update it daily if you wanted to. Even the chunkiest of software updates can now be broadcast via this medium relatively quickly and reliably and inexpensively to anyone around the world. Knowing about that shift in delivery mechanisms, the transition of Microsoft from open source hater to open source platform purchaser might make a little more sense. A previous iteration of the company was existentially threatened by the idea of having millions of hackers cracking open their digital goods and tinkering around with them. But the modern Microsoft and the modern version of many other mega corporations are not just comfortable with that idea. They kind of sort of rely upon it. Or said another way, someone opening up their software and looking at their source code is no longer such a big deal because preventing access is no longer their prime economic directive. Providing services that grant convenient access to that software is. And that software can evolve faster if they open up parts of it to independent hacking. And they can make more money if they use those same service channels to provide other software, stuff that they did not create as well. Owning GitHub does not mean that Microsoft owns all the effort of all the people who share their work on that platform. But owning that kind of space could give Microsoft a huge advantage in some of their most important profit centers, like the aforementioned delivering software as a service. 
and worrying about those particular profit centers is probably smart because it's in those spaces that they are competing with the likes of Google and Amazon and Apple, not to mention the thousands of smaller companies, both foreign and domestic, that are trying to take a sip of their milkshake. GitHub is just one of many platforms offering up cheap and intuitive Git access, for instance. And the same is true of pretty much any other specific software or software type, like spreadsheets or text editors, that you can think of. Dozens of Amazon's AWS, Amazon Web Service, offerings, for instance, are just open-source software based in Amazon's cloud, which allows them to sell that software to their clients, which again means the software that they are providing is available for free. What they are really selling is the ability to use it without having to figure it all out yourself. And with the stability of a major corporation's computing infrastructure, keeping everything running smoothly, backing everything up, keeping everyone's instance of the software updated, and so on. GitHub sells Git to clients in this way. Google sells their G Suite tools to clients in this way as well, and Microsoft sells many of the same open-source software services to their customers that Amazon does, including things like Linux-based servers. So even the mascot of the open-source movement is being sold by corporations in this way, even if indirectly, as kind of a freebie that makes using their otherwise undifferentiated server space and bandwidth a lot more appealing and useful. What we may be seeing in Microsoft's purchase of GitHub, then, is a desire to add one more software-as-a-service offering to their arsenal. They can now provide Git to their clients via the best-known platform for Git. But it also potentially offers up all kinds of soft benefits to Microsoft, like the ability to create a developer funnel using the back-end information of GitHub to identify rising talent early on to get in touch with them and to offer them benefits through their platforms, and then by plugging the platform in to their other platforms, either claiming those developers for themselves or owning the process by which other companies come to eventually hire those developers. This is where Microsoft having bought LinkedIn and Lynda and similar platforms comes into the mix. Devs start out their professional career at GitHub learn more skills on Lynda, and search for jobs and get discovered on LinkedIn. There are a lot of ways to combine those services and the others offered by Microsoft to create a truly compelling and powerful career-building and evolving pipeline. And they have the means to profit off both ends, charging the folks who are building their careers and charging the companies looking to hire those sorts of people. There's also a theory floating around that Microsoft intends to essentially gut GitHub and to profit from its parts rather than the whole. This idea centers around the theory that Microsoft purchased the platform not for the community, but because of the millions upon millions of data points that it offers to anyone who can see the whole scope of it. It could tell them a great deal about developers, the coding languages that the developer community is favoring, about the evolution of software, and about the actions of its opponents, including Amazon and Google, and who they've been working with and hiring, how they've been committing code and investing time and energy into various open source projects. It could be, in other words, that Microsoft wants to own the sandbox in which all of their competitors and potential future employees are playing. 
By doing so, they could benefit from some as-of-yet unseen X-factor, which gives them a leg up, which in turn allows them to corner or take a bigger share of the open-source software-as-a-service industry. This dynamic that we're seeing play out in the world of software, the evolving equilibrium between corporate entities and the world of open-source and similar licenses, has been happening in other spaces as well, beyond the world of operating systems and apps. Consider, for instance, the case of Wikipedia and YouTube. Back in March of 2018, YouTube announced in a talk by their CEO at the South by Southwest Tech Conference that they would be using Wikipedia to help add context to some of their videos, particularly those that relate to conspiracy theories and similar contentious and often fact-allergic issues. The idea was to provide supplemental information so that viewers of these conspiracy theory videos could make more informed decisions about what they were watching, which seems like a pretty good idea overall. Strangely, though, it turned out that YouTube never told Wikipedia about this plan. A piece from March 14th in The Verge spells out the situation pretty concisely. The headline kind of tells the whole story here, and that headline was, quote, YouTube didn't tell Wikipedia about its plans for Wikipedia, end quote. And the subheader was, quote, well, this is awkward, end quote. Now, I personally think it's a good idea to add this kind of context, and I can understand wanting to go to Wikipedia for that context. Despite its reputation for hosting information vandalism and periodic bits of junk information, it is still considered to be the most complete and reliable encyclopedia ever created. And as long as you know its limitations and follow the provided links to check your sources, rather than taking everything as gospel, if you use it as a starting point for research rather than an end destination, then it is by far one of the best hubs for absolutely anything that you might want to know. That said, the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the nonprofit behind Wikipedia and several related efforts, is a nonprofit organization, and they greeted the revelation about YouTube using them as a free fact checker pretty graciously saying, quote, Wikipedia's content is also freely licensed for reuse by anyone, and that's part of our mission, that every single person can share in free knowledge, end quote. Which is great, but there does seem to be a tone deafness from YouTube about why this was a weird thing for them to do. Alphabet, the owner of YouTube, has made polite donations to the Wikimedia Foundation over the years, arguably very small donations considering that they summon Wikipedia's resources pretty much every time they display search results, but still, they technically don't need to give anything. So, you know, something is something. That said, in a world in which tech titans are being increasingly chastised for taking advantage of their labor forces and straining public resources to further enrich themselves and their investors, it's boggling that they don't seem to realize how something like this looks. They're basically foisting the responsibility for solving the problems inherent in their algorithms, which regularly recommend obviously false conspiracy theories instead of more fact-based videos. They're pushing all of that on another far less well-funded non-profit entity onto Wikipedia. Every time they pull info from Wikipedia, that is costing the Wikimedia Foundation money. 
and it is saving Alphabet, again, YouTube's parent company, the money that they would otherwise spend doing that research and creating that content themselves. What we have then is another instance of free labor, valuable stuff created by people who care about producing valuable things that anyone can use. And those creations are being utilized by large corporations that soak up that free stuff and profit from it. In this case, it's YouTube making money from advertisements on videos that are served up alongside information provided for free by Wikipedia. And in other cases, it is Microsoft and Amazon making money off of high-quality open-source software, which was developed and refined by folks who work on it for free, without making a cent. And these companies more or less sell that freely developed software for profit by packaging it together with their infrastructural tech services. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with how all of this works. In a lot of cases, some of the most enthusiastic contributors to these free public resources are thrilled to see their work serving so many people, even if it comes to those people via a paid channel like AWS or YouTube. What's more, because a lot of these services tend to make this information or these programs available to folks who otherwise would not be savvy enough to use them or wouldn't know to look for them, it would be difficult to argue that these corporations are not adding anything to the mix, to that value chain. AWS and other companies that sell open source software as a service reinforce the overall quality of what's provided by investing in hardware infrastructure. You can use Apache without having to own and maintain your own physical server, and that is valuable. YouTube brings many times more people to some of Wikipedia's articles than Wikipedia could by themselves. So exposing Wikipedia's offerings to that kind of audience is unto itself a fairly impressive value add that is being provided by YouTube. That said, there is work to be done when it comes to licensing structures and ensuring that what amount to common resources like Wikipedia are not overstrained by these tech giants, resulting in a sort of tragedy of the commons situation, where the overall network slows down and all of us have more trouble accessing this free, shared, collaborative encyclopedia so that YouTube can save some money on hiring fact-checkers. Wikipedia already utilizes a Creative Commons license, of which there are many different flavors, but all of which outline the legal reuse options for anyone who wants to do so, including which commercial uses are kosher. And it really gets into the nitty-gritty here, from riffing on the original art, to sharing and attribution, to share-alike requirements, meaning anyone who takes your work and makes something new from it has to slap a comparable Creative Commons license on that new thing as well. These specifics are all there on a lot of work of this kind these days. And increasing the understanding and awareness about such licenses could be one way to go to ensure that abuses do not take place, especially when it comes to massively scaled up entities like YouTube using common collaborative resources like Wikipedia. There's another newer licensing approach that some creators are beginning to use called Common Clause, which is similar to open source in most respects, but which adds the caveat that cloud service providers like Microsoft and Amazon cannot take this open source whatever and sell it to the public. 
They cannot, in other words, add their Herculean hardware and software strength to the mix to make it more reliable and to offer it up to enterprise clients and then earn money from the use of this collaborative end product. There are pros and cons to this approach, of course. If Git had a common clause license, GitHub would never have become a thing. If you wanted to use Git, you would have had to create and maintain your project organization software yourself, which would have made managing it that much more difficult and less intuitive, and would likely have kept the framework from becoming as popular as it has. Far fewer people would have gotten into it in the first place. On the other hand, the Common Clause license language can also keep Amazon from hijacking the development of open-source software and selling it to their clients, while the folks who built that software and made edits to it over the years for free get nothing. There are good arguments for and against this type of clause, and I will link to some of both in the show notes, but I think it's an excellent additional data point for understanding what's happening in this space as it demonstrates one extreme position that could be staked out, one road that could be taken, which would arguably prioritize a type of fairness over raw utility and growth. And it implies the existence of other types of currently unavailable legal licenses that might position new creations at other points on that spectrum, from the completely open, no-questions-asked world of the free software movement to the closed, opaque world of proprietary software development. And again, while many of these licenses currently only apply, at least in practice, to software, it seems likely that we will see the same drifting over into other digital products as well, into books and music and games and websites and visual art and films. Some of these licenses, like Creative Commons, already have multimedia applications, but I'm guessing that we will see more and more refined variations in the coming years as we continue to debate who should make money from what, how to pay the people who create things in a world in which tangible scarcity is no longer a real limiting issue in most cases, and what alternatives might exist, and how those alternatives might benefit or harm the very societies in which these creators live. The resource that I would like to recommend today is actually something that I've only recently become reacquainted with. I, in the past, have gone out of my way to get a library card as soon as I have moved to a new city, whenever possible. But until just recently, I've been a little bit limited in that because I travel quite frequently, and typically in such a way that I'm not technically, legally living in the place that I am living. My home base, for legal purposes, is elsewhere. So at the moment, though, having recently made a change, and having changed my legal location for the duration of the tour that I'm on, at least, I now have a brand new library card, and that library card comes attached to a wonderful library that provides a bunch of digital resources in addition to the splendid physical ones that they offer. So my recommendation today is that if you have not done it recently, consider checking out what your local library offers. Mine offers an app for the library, but also supplementary apps, Overdrive and a new riff on Overdrive called Libby, RB Digital, Canopy, Hoopla, and even a free subscription to Lynda, that service where you can take courses on a variety of subjects online. 
through these apps I have access to ebooks and audiobooks and films and music, all kinds of different content, magazines if you want to read digital magazines. It's absolutely astounding what is available through some of these services. And the way that we ensure things like libraries remain well-funded is that we use these services whenever possible. And I will note as an author, as somebody who writes books for a living, authors do make money when libraries purchase a copy of our books. And it makes us very happy because that purchase will typically result in dozens of people reading the book rather than just one. So... It's wonderful if you buy a copy of an author's book that you want to support, but it's also a great option to request their books through your local library, through these services. And you can then read that book using one of these apps, or you can get a tangible version and hold it in your hands. So wherever you happen to be, whether or not you've ever been to the library before, I would enthusiastically recommend that you check out what's available, support your local library, and take a look at what's been happening in this space of late. It is really, really cool, the options that they have available these days. And if you're anything like me and you spend vast sums of money on books and such, you may be able to spend slightly less vast sums of money as a consequence of using some of these apps to supplement your book habit. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find more details about the speaking tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on Instagram or Twitter or whatnot. I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.